0: to Carefree, the podcast where we talk about life in and after foster care from every point of view. I'm Tammy, your host. I'm also a licensed master social worker, a trauma therapist, and the founder and director of Second Shift, where we assist at-risk and aging out foster care youth to transition to sustainable and connected independence. Today, we're talking about privilege. As a society, we have hopefully gained a deeper understanding into the term privilege in the past year. The conversations have been mostly centered on racial divides. Today, however, we're going to focus the conversation on the privilege that is experienced by kids who grow up in a typical, normal, common way with their families intact and their childhoods unmarked by the trauma and loss of foster care. The privilege of permanency is the status quo. The standard by which we measure childhood. It is the default that foster children do not experience. Like all privilege, it is often unseen, unrecognized, and unacknowledged by those of us who live inside a world of privilege. But today we're going to try to give you a glimpse into the disparities of foster care and the privilege of permanency. I'm so glad you're here. Now let's get started. This is episode four, part one of The Privilege of Permanency, and today I'm joined by the President of Second Shift, Ebony Kimber. Ebony is the owner of Professional Development with Ebony Kimber and is the former Independent Program Director at Children's Aid Society in Alabama, where she worked with the Department of Human Resources to provide programs for older transitional-aged youth in foster care, coordinated the annual networking conference, and directed the Dream Council for Exceptional Young Leaders. Welcome, Ebony. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and excited for this conversation. I'm excited you're here, too. Um, Let's begin by telling our listeners about the roles that we each have that allowed us to glimpse into the
1: foster care experience and become aware of this privilege. Absolutely. So um, once I completed grad school at the University of Alabama, I moved to work. um, really I started off at Children's A Society as a frontline worker and case manager in a program they called STAR and they also had a wraparound program and that was my introduction really to, well that's not true, I had worked Camp APAC prior to that and had been introduced to adoption um, and then so that's what brought me back to Children's A Society because I had interned there in undergrad so rewind to that. And then I came back and worked with them in that program. And the STAR program was a program for young kids in foster care who were in foster care for the first time. And so I worked with their foster parents and then I provided case management, family support. And then I worked with the wraparound program to help in a prevention from kids going into foster care. And I did that for a couple of years. And again, I was working at Camp APAC. And then um, Children's Aid Society re- received funding for um, a camp for youth and older youth in foster care because independent independent living was becoming um, more of a prevalent conversation in the child welfare field. And so they had Camp um, Camp IL or Independent Living Camp. And so most of the workers who were working in Camp AIMPAC had started working at, at the Independent Living Camp. Um, and, a, and so the first camp they had was just life-changing for me because I met kids who were telling stories of foster care that I had never heard, heard before. Just the mm-hmm. issues that they were having, the, the they hadn't been talking to their social workers, um, that they weren't getting the, you know, the funds that they needed to take care of the things. All the things we're about to talk about were all the things I was introduced to in, in that camp. Um, and so that is really what opened my eyes. And so I went back, and I actually ended up applying for a different job at a residential facility. Um, <laughs> and um, so they kind of catalyzed me to leave them. <laughs> and I became a therapist at a residential facility. And um, man, and I thought my eyes were opened at the camp. Working at residential facility just opened them up even more to right. the mm-hmm. privileges and to the the injustices that were happening to those older youth. Um, you know, the things that were happening in residential facilities that just were unheard of or not talked about. Um, mm-hmm. And my frustration level with the child welfare system just grew in that because my my poor teenagers in those in those spaces were just honestly just suffering. Um, and I thought that I could make a, a change in that arena, but I just really felt like I was more a part of the problem. So I only did that for a couple of years. I only did that for about two years. And then I moved back to Children's Aid Society to work in the Independent Living Program as more of an advocacy role. Um, and that that made me feel like I was a little bit more of a solution focused and trying to really affect change um, and being in direct contact with individuals who at the state office um, who had the kind of the information on reasons why certain things were happening. And then I came across people who were actually trying to, you know, make those changes, were aware that these things were happening. Um, and at the same time, um, the Department of Human Resources was under the wire because you know things were starting to come out on things that weren't being done appropriately. Um, and inj- the injustices that were happening to those young people. And um, and so all of these things lined up, uh, just kept unfolding the privileges or the lack of privilege that youth mm-hmm. and were experiencing. And so that's kind of like the alignment of how I was, my eyes were opened. Right. I think in the same way, um, I saw those
0: injustices when I was working in residential care too. And we have so many people that tell us that um, they just had no idea and we really don't. We don't know that we don't know and and we're not aware of what's going on and being in that arena and being able to see it firsthand is just eye-opening and shocking. Um, so I think you and I have that in common. Um, Let's explain to people what we mean by permanency.
1: Sure. Um, So I guess there's probably maybe a twofold, because sometimes I think I have a little bit of a different definition of permanency. But I know um, what everyone else sees as permanency is just having a secure or stable environment. Or most people would say that means having a family. I I did a quick Google search and it, you know, it says means having a positive, healthy, nurturing relationship with adults who provide emotional, financial, moral, educational, and Mm -hmm. other kinds of support as youth mature into adults. And while that's a very good definition, um, I also would go a little bit further because that is also a privilege. Um, That's another part of it because For our older youth in foster care who age out without that, that makes them feel like they are, they are in a deficiency. So I would expand permanency to be just simply feeling safe and secure in your environment and feeling as if you can provide for yourself or that you have a support system in place that feel that you feel like you can go to, to be, or to feel safe and secure. I don't know if you wanna expand on that, but to me, it's a little bit more than just having a family. It
0: is, I agree. Um, for the kids that we're working with, it is uh, more than having a family, it's being connected to that, that group of people that, that they can refer to as family. It's not always by adoption or blood. Um, so it does kind of grow, it's, it's bigger than permanency. I do wanna mention <clears throat> that DHR, has a definition for permanency. They have permanency plans and there are five different types of permanency that they um, direct kids to. And those might include adoption or returning to a relative or receiving a a guardianship with a, a relative. But the kids that we work with have a permanency plan called APLA. And that just means that they have no connections really. They have nobody that they can turn to. Um, so, permanency does mean that that family, that unit of people that that you can depend on, um, that our kids don't have. So, it's kind of what we think of as norm, because we think of people in our arena, you know, in our corner. We all have those people we can turn to, but these kids who are coming out of care don't have anybody usually. So. What are some of the things that you've seen that are different for the
1: kids in care? Let's just list some of them and we'll get into them in a minute. Yeah, absolutely. So that we've already kind of touched on the concept of residential care um, in terms of their education or academic process and their progress um, and the supports they receive in in that academic arena. Um, Something, you know, most teenagers get their driver's license at 16 years old. Um, So that's something that is a privilege and things that aren't experienced, quote unquote, we'll use the term normal, but that's, you know, that could be, you know, looked at a different ways. Um, Having Mm -hmm. friends or friendships, um, going to see friends, um, dating, retrieving or um, getting clothing, you know, shoes, coats, Social events, so like attending prom and graduation, um, events when you're young that are, you know, seem to be typical um, and easy, um, may not yeah. be the, the case for our youth in foster care. Obtaining employment, looking for it, having connections for it, knowing how to get it, um, having a phone, being able to keep that phone. Um, mm-hmm. Just anything involving social media, contact, you know, typical teenager type situations, Uh um, The medical decisions, options, and procedures, you know, just having choices and things like that. Uh Um, Honestly, the list could go on and on (laughs) with so many things, but, you know, those are probably some of the things that we are going to discuss and talk about. Right. It, It really could be everything. Everything's so different.
0: So let's talk about um, residential care. Let's dig into that a little bit. Um, Let's discuss the difference in the environment and home life um, for foster kids versus our normal, typical, or common kids. Uh, Most of the adolescents in foster care in Alabama are not living with foster families, correct?
1: Right. So nearly 40% of our older kids in foster care are currently in congregate care. when we say congregate care, we're talking about institutional care. So it can be Mm -hmm. in in different forms. So there's, um, you know, what is called more least restrictive amount of care is more like a group home, um, you know, and so those, you know, typically have like a a house parent and they're kind of family style. Um, Even some of like the ranches are, are, um, crafted in that way as well so you have a cup, you know a couple a few like four to five young people in a home um, and then you have like a boarding school type of situation um, which is really kind of more like it sometimes it merges into a treatment facility because they have mm-hmm. on-site school where many right. young people attend. Um, sometimes there's a difference sometimes um, there's a mixture of parents who just send their children to that, you know, to that placement, and they still have custody. And then there are sometimes youth who are actually in the custody of the Department of Human Resources. Sometimes they're mixed in that way. So sometimes there's private pay into that. Sometimes it's DHR pay. So they are run a little bit differently sometimes. And then you have actual treatment facilities where you have to have a diagnosis to be admitted to in there. So when I say resident care facility, like where I work used to work, um, That is more where that is. They require a nurse there. They require a licensed counselor or a licensed social worker that has to, and it's most of the time, most of those young people are gonna be receiving medications. They have to see a psychiatrist. And then you have an actual inpatient hospital treatment program, which is more the most intensive care amount of care. Um, Oftentimes those, both those and the residential care facilities are locked facilities. So, most of the time they have a gate, or you have to be buzzed in. Um, and then I also want to add, sometimes there's also like a juvenile justice program as well. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of um, youth and foster care are actually in those systems as well. And those are even more intensive level of care as well. So when we're talking about these things, that, that is what, what we are talking about.
0: That's good information. That's um, there, there are a lot of different facilities and types of care that I think the general public is not really aware of. A lot of people are surprised when when I'm speaking to people and they realize that the kids are not all in foster homes, Um, so I think it's good information to share. Some of these programs are really designed to resemble a home environment, but I think they all miss the mark. Um, There's no question that the experience is institutional, even in a group home setting. Right. And I think right. we both observed that uh, for kids in congregate care, um, this environment yes. is kind of institutional and yeah. um, not a nurturing family. Yes. So let's dig a little bit more into education. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of thoughts do you have regarding the education difference or privilege
1: um, difference between foster care and our typical kids? Absolutely. And in every aspect, there are so many different things. Um, Even when I first started working in that STAR program, um, even for my younger youth in foster care, um, there were so many, so many barriers to, you know, really one of the simple things was having someone at the school to advocate on your behalf. Um, I would always have. so many barriers to just encouraging a foster parent to be actively involved in the academic life of their child that they had in their home. Um, And that is a whole nother story of, you know, foster care reform and just foster parenting reform. And don't get me wrong, I don't, I'm not a foster parent basher. I'm not trying (laughs) to say that because I know like people are like, but foster parenting is amazing. There are some amazing foster parents, but there are right. some who are not, and we are just going right. to be honest about that. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And um, and so that was a huge barrier because you know you have so many quote unquote normal kids whose mm-hmm. parents will go to bat in any arena of their lives. I know me as a parent, as far as Nehemiah is concerned, unless he's doing what he's not supposed to be doing. I, I'm, what is, what is happening in his academics? I'm going to be involved. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to be working with things on him at home. If his teacher says it needs it, if he's behind on something, you know, I'm going to, if he is in trouble, I'm coming to the school and I'm going to sit there and I'm going to find out what's happening. And, uh-huh. right. you know, and, you know, why are you not listening to your teacher? Why are you clowning? And I'm going to ask all those, those questions. And unfortunately for our youth in foster care, they just do not have those things. And sometimes right. It, en- it ended up being me. It ended up being the mm-hmm. social worker. And that's no fun because then you have people at, well, is that your mom? And, you know, for foster kids, sometimes they're like, yes, or <laughs> right. they embarrassed. They're like, no, that's my auntie. Or, mm-hmm. or they're bold enough to say, especially when you get to teenagers and older youth, that, yeah, that's my social worker. And mm-hmm. then there's all these questions. Then they're labeled because now people know that they're a foster kid. Right. Uh, and it's just it's frustrating. And I know one of the things that many of my older youth would say, um, you know, the privilege of being able to be dropped off in a car or being able to ride Mm -hmm. the bus because one of their biggest things was I have to get dropped off in a van Mm -hmm. as, you know, whatever facility on the side of it as if like, I'm just like, something's wrong with me. Um, And that would be the complaints of so many of my young people. Um, and I, I remember, and when we're talking about individual education plans, um, I had a young person who had the support of the foster parent and um, of the social worker and many people, um, but the school had just made the decision that they did not want to work with him. Um, and no matter what we said, no matter what we were doing, um, they were just combative with us again and Mm -hmm. again simply because they knew that he was a a kid in foster care.
0: Right.
1: people just feeling super defensive because he did have the support system. And I was like, this is super backwards. Like he has the support of people who want to work with him to help him. But because you all are feeling intimidated by this, this young person is not receiving what he needs. And honestly, he ended up not finishing high school. Now he did go on and um, end up going to job Corps and doing what he needed to do. But I found that unfortunate that he even had to go around the world in order to do that because the school didn't want to be supportive of him. It's just, it's it's a privilege to have a supportive school and a supportive system to make sure that you have academic success.
0: It is, and, and there's, you were talking about just how being in foster care, there's such a stigma. Um, it's, it's a cloud that's just over their head. And that's something that our typical and normal kids don't have. They don't have to fight through that label mm-hmm. um, just to receive normal um, respect and have expectations that are normal um, for a for child in foster care. Um, having some learning legs or behaviors in school does seem to trigger the, the staff to, um, to just be more cautious. They're more alert. They're concerned that that there's going to be some problems, you know, down the road that they might not even be thinking of with a typical or normal kid.
1: Um,
0: okay. They are just going to, you know, address the behavior by calling parents or, you know, having a meeting or you know, work on the learning legs, you know, with the, the ILP and, you know, try to bring them up. But yeah, I have noticed also in, in meetings with school staff and advocating for a young person in foster care, there is kind of a, a fear. It's a fear base, you know, that they're concerned that something is going to happen and they don't address it in the same way. Thank you for joining us for the first part of The Privilege of Permanency. This is only the beginning of this topic. We will continue this conversation in the near future. Our October episode will be Foster Fright, true life horror stories of life and care. And in November, we hope to bring you a glimpse into adult adoption with some families who truly live the idea that it's never too late for family. Join us next time. Until then, be carefree.